Busy week for all the teams as all finally were able to see game action with some surprising results. Also, the blockbuster trade. Ian Cole for Greg Patteron. Okay, that wasn't the blockbuster trade, but we will talk about it and the Patrick Line Jack Rosovic deal for Pierre Luc Dubois. It's not just a deal that impacts Winnipeg in this one off in divisional game NHL schedule. Nothing we do here is for a hot take. So here's the weekly goods. Welcome to Central Division Hockey, the podcast this week, a wrap of last week's games with analysis and a look ahead to the week ahead for the eight teams that will make up the Central Division in 21-22. January 26th, Tuesday, I'm Tim Bigelow, your host. A full slate of games tonight after Sunday that saw all eight teams we cover in action in seven games. That's happening again tonight. That's why the podcast is out Tuesday morning this week. Usually the podcast will drop Monday morning or afternoon. Two things. I know I said the deadline day trade talk was annoyingly premature last week to see stories and hot takes already about. I do appreciate in the shortened 56 games played schedule that moves early on, especially given COVID protocols, delaying a traded player's ability to play with this new team may lead to earlier actual trades this season and the division saw two go down this week. First, a blockbuster. Given that insiders had leaked Winnipeg and link Patrick Line to Columbus deal for Pierre-Luc Dubois a full evening prior to it being completed, it wasn't a surprise, nor was unrestricted free agent right-winger holdout Jack Rosovic, a native of Columbus, inclusion in that deal a surprise either. We finally hear Winnipeg GM Kevin Chevaldeoff be clear a top center or top pair D-man was what Winnipeg needed in return for Line. I personally, in the Jets offseason preview podcast, had said right-hand defenseman Seth Jones was the only player I would trade a Line for from Columbus. However, Dubois was the latest player in Columbus to one out, as did Line and Rosovic from Winnipeg. We also heard the Jets organization didn't feel Patrick Laine playing with Mark Scheifele worked out last year on the top line. Interesting that injuries to both can be credited for the team's offense going quiet and a quick exit from the playoff bubble. The remaining big three, Kyle Connor, Blake Wheeler, and analytics darling Nick Ehlers didn't drive and produce enough offense without the other two in the lineup. That combined with having a fourth line that was subpar is the facts of the postseason exit. Not the defense, all the media and everyone looking to get a pandemic pet from the Winnipeg Humane Society was focused on. The Jets players wanting out was usage-based. First, Jack Rosovic didn't get to play top six. The coach wouldn't play him at center as well unless it was a fourth line. With last year, that would have been some suspect line mates or, as they did, stick him on the checking third line 
also because Blake Wheeler playing second line center wasn't what the coach wanted to move him up on the right wing side into the top six. Rozovic, in my opinion, was one of the Jets' best six forwards playing third line while other players played top six ahead of him. I don't blame him for wanting a trade and holding out. Oddly, one wonders if he would have got the opportunity on the second line if he wasn't traded with line A. I'm not convinced the coach wouldn't just promote center left winger Andrew Kopp and put left wingers on his off wing anyways. For line A, getting a second line center, Paul Statsny made sense when Winnipeg didn't want Shifley with line A. It's the only quality center that did play great with line A in his time with Winnipeg. Who is his center in Columbus going to be? That will matter, but we'll get into that in a bit. Prior to last year in Columbus, two-time Vesna Trophy winner goalie Sergei Bobrovsky signed with Florida and winger all-star Artemi Panarin signed with the New York Rangers as unrestricted free agents. Late season deadline edition, center Matt Deshane also signed in Nashville. Add this offseason trade with Montreal that sent forward Josh Anderson for center Max Domi, like Winnipeg, Columbus isn't retaining its star players. In fact, Columbus have done worse than Winnipeg in that regard. I don't want to be tough on small markets, but let's make one important distinction. Winnipeg is a hockey-mad small Canadian market. Columbus is just a small American market with a hockey team. They are not the same. By the way, six games played, three goals, one assist, four points, 14-45 time on ice for Anderson with Montreal this year. Domi, six games played, two assists, two points, 14-51 time on ice for Columbus. I believe center Brandon Dubinsky currently on IR is probably another jacket player that once healthy will want a change of scenery. The Jets get Pierre-Luc Dubois, definitely a top six center left shot. The right wing side is gutted thanks to Coach Maurice. Captain Blake Wheeler is 34 years old now. To me, he would have been placed on the checking third line while Line 22 and Rosovic 23 played top six right wing. Mason Appleton 25 might be an option at right wing in the top six. And thankfully, the Jets signed Trevor Lewis 34 for depth on right wing right after training camp. Really, I can't stress how I dislike players playing their off wing, but I fully expect Nick Ehlers will have to do that job now in Winnipeg. By the way, 17 goals is a prorated 25 goal mark for this shortened 65 game schedule. I also think moving Statsny to the wing from center and getting Andrew Kopp out of the top six altogether would benefit the Jets. Ehlers paying his off wing is going to allow the Jets that option. Anything I do suggest often isn't what Coach Maurice does, is to explain why I have to lead off the podcast talking about disgruntled players and their usage to begin with. I absolutely have zero joy in doing this. Dubois, 22, had in five games played this season one goal, 1431 time on ice average. Also, he was 54.1% face-off win percentage. However, the over-talked-about benching game skews the average time on ice as he played 355 in his last game in Columbus. Let's take that out of the equation. It becomes 1710 average time on ice, 
the four games and not including the benching one. Last year, Dubois, 70 games played, 18 goals, 32 assists, 49 points in the regular season. In the postseason, in 10 games played, he had a point per game, four goals, six assists. Career-wise, 293 games played, 66 goals, 93 assists, 459 points. Line played one game this year before getting injured. He had two goals, one assist for three points, averaged 16, 20 time on ice in that game that went into overtime. Last season, 68 games played in the regular season, 28 goals, 35 assists, 63 points. He has had two 30-plus goals seasons in his career and one 40-plus goal season. Career-wise, 306 games played, 140 goals, 110 assists for 250 points. That's a 90-point swing with Dubois playing 13 less games. The swing may be in the players Dubois will play with versus who Line will play with going forward. One for one age factored and that Dubois is a center may look more favorable. Line is a generational goal scorer. You don't actually replace those. But in the NHL, teams win cups, not individual players. Rosovic then was for a third round pick, Futures. This I dislike as the right wing side is an injury away from life supports in Winnipeg with three natural right wingers as it stands now. At worst, Rosovic is a top nine NHL player about to enter his prime. He will get a shot hopefully playing center and he also deserves a top six look. Career, 180 games played, 26 goals, 41 assists, 67 points. Keep in mind, that's all bottom six production. His 12 goals last year, a career high, were playing on the checking third line in Winnipeg. Rosal can also be, I think, a 20-25 a year goal guy, given the opportunity, and that's where the short term on the pure goal production the Jets traded 40 goals total last year for 18 goals. Line A will have 50 goal years, and Roswell, I think, is going to max at 20 to 30 goals some years. When Columbus combined adds potential 80 goals in a season or two for a 20-goal scorer, man, that is a goal production swing. I hope the hockey analytics guys think about that when looking back on this deal. To me, on a pure goal production level, I don't see how the Jets win this trade short or long term. Who knows if the third rounder pick amounts to anything. Rosovic can play top nine in the NHL right now, and I believe he can play top six. Right-hand defenseman, top pair D, Seth Jones, to me was better value to becoming better defensively for the Winnipeg team if you aren't scoring as many goals when you're trading away a generational scorer. Sadly, only if Dubois stays in Winnipeg and the Jets win the cup and the team isn't a cup contender under its current construction, that's how Winnipeg wins the trade. That's the ultimate pressure, and I think probably why Dubois won't stay long-term in Winnipeg. Rosovic's agent is former NHLer Claude Lemieux, and his son Brendan, another client, also found his way out of Winnipeg via a trade request. Carl Darlstrom, who was moved in the Stassen deal to Vegas, is another client. Rosovic was the last of his clients to leave Winnipeg. The other was picked up off of waivers by Nashville recently when they claimed defenseman Lucas Spiza. 
It's to say, don't underestimate Claude Lemieux wanting his clients on other teams. For GM Kevin Cheval Dayoff for now, there's no longer any Jets represented by Lemieux. I think this fact has gone a little under the radar. Finally, while Dubois is a Jet and the Central Division rivals don't see him for this year, the trade didn't exactly help out the teams in the one-off dating your ex-girlfriend's sister Central Division or new one-year Central for Dallas, Nashville, and Chicago, either as they are playing Columbus all this year. They probably were ecstatic to not have to see Line A this year, and well, now they will. Dubensky is on IR, so right now the top two centers are Bone Jenner and Max Domi, and I think Jenner, for his size, seems like the logical fit for center for Line A on the wing. Part of me thinks I'd like to see Domi play left wing with Rozovic at center and Line A on right wing. Columbus have right wing Cam Atkinson and injured Gustav Nyquist on right wing or center as well. The left wing is the weaker side. Nyquist is a left shot. Maybe he can play his natural side. Can't say I've followed Columbus too much up until this year just because of them being in the other conference. Columbus looked to be underachieving at the start of this year and having trouble scoring goals from what I saw. Where I had expected them to be was just below Tampa Bay and Dallas in this new central. To me, both Florida and Carolina looked better early on than Columbus, but they definitely added two NHL-ready players that will bolster the offense now. This deal probably hurts Nashville's chances of making the playoffs most. The other trade? Minnesota right-hand defenseman 30-year-old Greg Patterin, $2.25 million one-year, traded to Colorado for left-handed D, 31-year-old Ian Cole, $4.25 million one-year in return. Colorado retains eight hundred k of Cole's salary, so they save $1.2 million in the deal. Cole, career-wise, 543 games played and a back-to-back cup winner with Pittsburgh. Patterin, 270 games played by comparison career-wise. Patterin, this season, three games played with two assists, 12.36 time on ice average, and had three assists in 20 games, 15.28 time on ice in the regular season last year. Cole, this season, two games played, zero points, 14.41 time on ice. He played 65 games last year, four goals, 22 assists, 26 points, 1741 time on ice in the regular season. This deal was made prior to the Liney Dubois deal, the first of the two, and the teams were both playing on the road in California that they secured a private team bus to drop off Pattern and Cole through proper COVID protocols to not have to have either player have to miss joining their respective new teams. That may, in fact, be the most interesting part of this trade. I know during the Minnesota Wild Free Agency recap, one of the things I was critical of was GM Bill Guerin taking on salary and trades. Colorado retained some in this deal. And if you don't notice Bill Guerin going and bringing in another guy with ties to Pittsburgh, well, it's clearer than daylight that the culture shift is being boosted by former Penguins. Benino added via trade was another and there are more. Cole as a bottom pair guy in Minnesota is an upgrade on Patterson. I think too much focus after the trade was the physical element Cole would bring. In actuality, 
Cole's puck-moving abilities with a zone exits and transition game are a bigger asset in this one-for-one -one deal. Paired with Carson Soucy and having Brad Hunt as a 70 is an upgrade for the Wild, who bolstered an already good D group. That's a great top six now. Everything from the Colorado side looks to be about salary savings, but it's for the NHL cap flexibility, not that much additional space when you really think about it. Cole was an everyday D-man, yet Connor Timmins is certainly showing he is capable of that bottom pair spot, and early on the Avs have also been given opportunity to top prospect Bowen Byram, so Patterson is the seventh guy who won't have to play every night makes sense at a cheaper cost you can't say it made colorado's defense better but patterson can play bottom pair honestly the d group has a more bodies even with eric johnson day to day that ryan graves was a healthy scratch on sunday while patterson timmons byron mccarr taves and gerard all played Still, Minnesota, I think, has a D-man in this deal that will most likely contribute more to his new team. Colorado may have assisted in helping their still-divisional rival be better doing this deal. Before going into the games and analysis for this week, the additional space for Colorado means GM Joe Sackick has something else percolating trade-wise. This is just so like him. Backup goalie Pavel Frankos is on IR and not sure everything with the offense has gone as expected. I think Colorado and GM Joe Sackick has another deal or two they are considering making, and that's going to be sooner than later. Every week, Central Division Hockey, the podcast this week, will break down into the three divisions the teams are playing in this year before we get the band all together again next season. We start with the West Division as they have four teams we cover. The new Central with three teams falls from there. And we always finish with the lone team playing this year in the North Division. Of course, all eight of those teams will be back in the Central Division, or at least that's what the league has promised us for 21-22. Starting with the West Division, not related to the power rankings that we will look at around the 20 games played mark this season, the team order will be by the team that had the best week within each of the divisions, top to bottom. So for this week, we start with Minnesota. They went 2-2, two and two, and overall are 4-2 and two in six games played with eight points, now sitting second in the West. 18 goals, 4-15 goals against a plus-three goal differential. In the games, Monday, a 1-0 loss at Anaheim. The game was scoreless through two. Minnesota had more shots, yet I feel Cam Talbot faced more high-danger scoring chances and made 11 high-quality saves of his 26-save total. Minnesota was guilty of overpassing on the power play. In the third, a 4-on-3 leads to the game's only goal by Anaheim. Greg Patterson broke up a 2-on-1 with a great defensive play in his last game for the Wild. Minnesota outshot Anaheim 34-27. Cam Tellett was great, made 26 saves, allowing one goal against in the loss. Anaheim John Gibson steals this game and picks up the shutout with 34 saves. Both teams failed to score on the power play. Anaheim 
Anaheim went 0 for 2, Minnesota 0 for 5. Simply, the Anaheim goalie stole a game in spite of a stellar performance at the other end of the rink by Cam Talbot as well. Wednesday was a 3-2 win at Anaheim. The Ducks took a penalty in the first minute. Jonas Brodeen hit the crossbar on that power play. Kapil Kakinen was getting his first start for Minnesota. Ryan Hartman got a breakaway shorthanded, and he buried his own rebound for his first career shorthanded goal. Minnesota won nothing after one. In the second, Zach Parisi on the power play net side can't tuck it in. The ensuing faceoff off the draw, Puck goes off a body, goes to Benino in the dot, and he fires it home for Minnesota to go up two to nothing. 20th power play opportunity and Minnesota converts its first power play goal this year. A rebound Anaheim goal put in after Kakinen stop off his glove remains loose in the slot and at 739 Anaheim finishes off a two-on-one to make it a two-all game beating Kakinen low blocker side. Minnesota was badly out shooting Anaheim 27-11 at this point in the game. In the third, Joel Erickson X gets a pass in the slot off the cycle and scores high glove side for the game winning goal. Kakinen two goals against 22 saves in the win. Minnesota outshot Anaheim 32-24 dominated the first 16-6 were the shots. Power play wise Minnesota went one for four and had that shorthanded goal. Anaheim was 0 for 2 on the power play. The teams end up splitting the two games set. Ian Cole played his first game with an average time on ice of 17.31 on the bottom pair with Carson Soucy. Friday, a 4-1 win for the Wild versus San Jose. In the first, Jordan Greenway from the sidewall, his shot was tipped by Joel Erickson Eck through the five hole for Minnesota to score. Less than two minutes, former Av Matt Nieto through a screen ties it at one for San Jose. Cam Talbot looks to have a leg cramp on a late San Jose power play. For the second, Kapil Kakinen replaces Talbot in net. With under seven in the frame, three on two for Minnesota, and Zach Parisi gets his first of the season in net front, that turns out to be the game-winning goal. In the third, Kevin Fiala gets his first, stripping Eric Carlson of the puck at the Minnesota blue line to go in and score an empty net goal. Greenway added another one. Kakinen, who entered a tied game, picks up the win. No goals against for him, 17 saves. Former wild goalie Devin Dumnik has his first start as an opposition goalie since March 3rd of 2013 in Minnesota, and he allowed two goals against, made 25 saves in his return for the loss. Ryan Donato also played his first after being traded this past offseason as well. Talbot one goal against 11 saves in his period of work. Shots on goal were even at 29. Both teams went 0 for 3 as well on the power play. Nico Sturm was a late scratch, so Minnesota dressed 11 forwards, 7D for the game. Brad Hunt dressed instead of a forward, 509 time on ice, primarily offsetting Carson Soucy's third pair minutes. 
Sunday 5-3 loss versus San Jose. Less than five minutes in, Zach Parisi finishes off an odd man rush with Kirill Kaprizov to give Minnesota the lead. Former Wild Ryan Donato in the last minute of the first ties the game on a goal. Kapo Kakinen wants back. San Jose badly outshot Minnesota 12-3, yet the game was tied at one after one. A San Jose power play goal and even strength goal before the 10-minute mark made it 3-1 San Jose. Nick Bukestad had a goal called back for goalie interference, but then scored on a net front tip before the second ended. Minnesota, by the end of the period, outshot San Jose for the game. 13:40 of the third, a beauty of a point blast off a faceoff win to start a power play by Kevin Fiella tied the game at three. Under two minutes off a faceoff win in the Minnesota zone, a pinch by Brent Burns pays off as he weaves and shelves home the game-winning goal. The replay shows all five wild defenders and Kakinen in the frame with the lone Burns in an unexpected individual effort. Matt Nieto adds an empty net goal to seal it. San Jose outshot Minnesota 36-29, but the pushback to tie it in the third, then to lose, was disappointing. Kakinen had an off night in the loss, four goals against, 31 saves, and a couple of goals that needed to be saved. This week's analysis for Minnesota. You could call it a disappointing week if you wanted to be hard on the Wild, yet we start the West Division talking about them being second in the division. Easily, this team could have been 4-0. Anaheim goalie John Gibson stole the Monday game, and he did that not just to many this week, to be fair. Gibson may be the only reason a person doesn't fall asleep trying to watch the Ducks. The 3-2 win Anaheim had goalie Ryan Miller in net four, and that's the split. But the split is only because of Gibson. The Wild deserve better. Losing Cam Talbot also only affected Minnesota on Sunday. Otherwise, Capo Kakinen was great in his first start and in the two periods of relief this week. He could have been better Sunday, although the Wild let San Jose dictate far too much of the play in that loss. A lot is going to be made of how hard getting the sweep on these sets of games will be. I don't agree with that early narrative. And yes, a lot has been said of the power play struggles early for Minnesota. 7.4% isn't good. In fact, it's 29th overall right now in the league. There are signs it is improving. Let's remember the amount of change to the forward group this offseason. Reps and chemistry is needed. It will get better, whereas the Wilds 90% penalty kill rate has them tied for first in the nhl and ian cole will help maintain that we said the returning defense would help the wild while the forward group found chemistry the wild are tied for ninth in goals against while the offense is tied for 15th in the league they are showing early they are in the playoff mix in the west division and the offense is the area that will grow the scoring by committee has happened 13 players with a goal at least with the surprising team leader Joel Eriksson-Eck with three not surprising when you remember he is playing third line with Jordan Greenway and Marcus Foligno that's a line that has played together and doesn't need time to find chemistry coach Dean Evason also had Zach Parisi Kirill Kaprizov and Kevin Fiella on a line Sunday versus San Jose that trio playing five on five minutes not just the power play, is something to keep an eye on. They do need to play a full 60 for Coach Dean Evison to be successful. Here's this week's useless factoid. This week, a stat that 
Well, it's actually noteworthy. Only center Nick Bonino at 57.6% face-off wins is more than 50% in the dot for Minnesota so far this year. Two wingers and now injured Nico Sturm were at 50%, while all the other centers are well below 50%. When you think of the game-winning goal Sunday was off a lost defensive zone face-off, this is an area the team needs to shore up, well, except for Bonino. Thumbs up this week, Minnesota's third line for their consistent play. Thumbs down. The 11 forward 7D when defenseman Brad Hutt is averaging five minutes time on ice at the expense of running four lines. Not really a good usage of that configuration for your forward defense group. Additional Minnesota news, goaltender Cam Talbot, who was tremendous to start the year, is listed as day-to-day. Center Nico Sturm is as well. Up next, four games tonight versus L.A., Thursday versus L.A., and then a pair of back-to-back versus Colorado on Saturday and Sunday. Minnesota continues a six-game homestand with four more this week. The back-to-back with Colorado will benefit having Talbot back if he is available. Also, as you will hear in later coverage, L.A. and goalie Jonathan Quick can't be overlooked. This week is a real test for Minnesota. At worst, splits would be understandable. Minnesota would impress with going at least 3-1. and one. Also, picking up regulation wins is big. The late goal Sunday took away at least a potential extra point. You want those this year with this divisional format. Moving on to St. Louis, 2-1-1 and one this week, overall 3-2-1, and one. six games played, seven points. They've got 17 goals for, 23 goals against, that's a minus six goal differential. Monday, a 5-4 win versus San Jose in the first outshot, the Sharks 13-8, St. Louis did, but a San Jose tip shot opened the scoring. An off-the-rush power play goal for San Jose made it 2 nothing after one. In the second, just out of the penalty box, Justin Falk's wrister went glove side to get St. Louis on the board. 145 later, a Colton Perenko point blast was tipped by Mike Hoffman, low blocker side, to tie the game at two. Jordan Cairo hits the post in the slot later. Another San Jose power play goal off a clean zone entry. And then Cairo's speed creates a chance, but he is poke-checked. The rebound was collected by Shen in front off the post, and off Devin Dubnik's pad, his first game in net for San Jose since the trade from Minnesota in the offseason. Remember, this game is before Minnesota plays. That tied the game again at three. With a minute left in the frame, the odd man rush, Falk joins the St. Louis rush and deflects a shot home for a 4-3 St. Louis lead. In the third, a San Jose goal from the goal line net side was banked in off a of goalie Jordan Bennington to tie the game at four. On a delayed San Jose penalty, Cairo gets the game-winning goal on a nice drop pass from Perenko for the 5-4 St. Louis win. St. Louis outshot the Sharks 33-26. St. Louis still without a power play goal for the season at this point was 0 for 3, San Jose went 2 for 3, Bennington had 22 saves, 4 goals against, and got the win, as former Wild goalie Devin Dumnik had 28 saves, 5 goals against, and the loss. Wednesday was a 2-1. 
shootout loss versus San Jose for St. Louis. Both teams played better defensively. St. Louis dictated the five-on-five play. St. Louis defenseman Nico Mikola, net side, had a chance. He got in the lineup as defenseman Marco Scandello was unable to play. Sammy Blay also in the lineup after serving his two-game suspensions. The teams negate power play chances, play a four on four no one scores in the second san jose hits the post two minutes in Braden shen finds a loose puck goes glove side for st louis to open the scoring vince dunn rings iron with three and a half minutes left around two minutes left a big rebound leads to a san jose goal tie game at one after two the third san jose hits a post on a three on two shorthanded rush scoreless in the third five minutes of overtime resulted in one shot on goal terrible three on three to watch actually worst overtime i think i've had to watch played by a pair of teams in recent memory san jose fourth shooter in the shootout thomas hurdle gets the only goal in the shootout for a 2-1 san jose shootout win bennington 37 saves one goal against for the shootout loss the majority in the third where san jose had a 13-3 shot advantage st louis 0 for 5 on the power play san jose was worse at 0 for 7 four of which had calls negate the advantages teams played four on four. It's to say one of those St. Louis power plays was, I think, five seconds in length. Penalties canceled power plays. So those numbers are a little inflated. St. Louis does pick up the loser point. Saturday, a 4-2 win versus L.A. Tory Krug gets his first as a blue on the power play midway through the first for a one nothing St. Louis lead after one first St. Louis power play goal for the season. LA ties the game a minute into the second, the first of four goals between the teams. Less than two minutes later, Vince Dunn gets St. Louis the lead back, and later David Perron scores. However, a LA power play goal cuts the St. Louis to three two lead after two Jaden Swartz gets the lone third period marker an empty net goal with two seconds remaining Bennington two goals against 21 saves for the win St. Louis outshot LA 30-23 St. Louis was one for two on the power play LA went one for five LA backup goalie Kelvin Pedersen was in net. St. Louis was 0 for 14 entering the game on the power play. Just to remind Minnesota fans, there is more than one team that has struggled with the advantage this season. A topic to be continued for perspective as the podcast continues. Sunday, a 6-3 loss versus LA. After Braden Shend opened the scoring for St. Louis with less than two minutes in the first, LA gets two goals 23 seconds apart, one of which rookie goalie Billy Huso in his first NHL start should probably have made the save on. The Blues came out flat in the second, and LA scored three more even-strength goals to take a commanding 5-1 lead into the third. The lack of effort for Huso's first NHL start was disappointing to be sure. 28-18 were the shots favoring LA after two. Six minutes into the third, St. Louis would get two goals 48 seconds apart to cut into the lead. Shen second and Ryan O'Reilly made it a 5-3 score. That's as close as St. Louis would get. LA would add 
had a late empty net goal. Huso ended up with five goals against, 34 saves, and looked average. Although the compete from St. Louis in front of him more explains the score. Quick 31 saves, three goals against. He's 2-0-2 now on the year, and he looked the better of the goalies. 35-31 shots for L.A. St. Louis 0-2 on the power play. L.A. 1-4. St. Louis analysis this week it's early in the season to be putting too much weight into six games played but man does this look like the uninspired compete and inconsistency st louis had in the bubble in edmonton than the first place blues at the regular season pause last year coach greg baruby didn't hold any punches in the 2-1 shootout loss to san jose and the game versus la sunday was more disappointing The trend is one good game followed by a bad game, and playing 500 won't put you into the top half of the division this year and make the playoffs. First, goalie Jordan Bennington has been St. Louis' best player night in and night out. This condensed schedule, however, means Huso is going to have to play some games and the team has to play better in front of him. As I said last week, last year during the regular season, four games at home to Cali teams you could lock in those eight points and four W's for St. Louis. A 2-1-1 one, and one is not that mark. The shootout loss point still has St. Louis third in the division. Should we point out that's one point ahead of the next four teams in the division? Coach Craig Berube needs a leadership group especially new captain Ryan O'Reilly, to fix this effort and compete issue. To be honest, St. Louis is better than the record to start the season. Truth is, I put them in the third spot in the division in the power rankings to start the season because I needed to see the consistency that cup contending teams have, that since going to the bubble in Edmonton, That has not been a descriptor of the Blues. They can't rely on stellar backup goalie Jake Allen now, not just for Bennington. St. Louis actually have to outplay and limit what Huso faces, and yet both he and Bennington are having to stand on their heads to keep St. Louis in games. The leadership group needs to step on this quick. This is on the players. The Blues are tied for 18th in goals in the league, yet 27th in goals allowed. Minnesota worried about their power play. St. Louis is 30th at 5.6%. They were in the top three in the regular season last year in that category. The PK is also 66.7%, 26th overall. So both special teams are costing St. Louis. I wondered about the secondary scoring. It's hard to say the team right now has a defined top six. After Braden Shen with four goals to lead the team, it's Jordan Cairo and Oscar Sunquist with two goals for the forwards. To be fair, Oscar Sunquist is making a case to get to play top six regularly. Too many passengers on this team, not enough drivers. Defensively, everyone but me said this team would remain as good. The numbers suggest otherwise. The game Marco Scandella missed, you really noticed the drop-off. The other key guy is the 
talented group of centers should be helping more in the defensive zone now than they are. And if some people think I'm being extra critical of St. Louis more than other teams, maybe it's because I do place a higher expectation level on this team given the depth it has. They should be battling for first. They have to play every night, not every second night. Here's their useless factoid for St. Louis this week. During the 2-1 shootout loss on Inauguration Day in the U.S., the broadcast team said the Blues were 5-0 playing on that day. One, I haven't fact-checked to know if that actually isn't a joke altogether, but that streak has ended, and I won't remember it four or eight years from now if they play next Inauguration Day. Made me wonder, do two-term presidents have two Inauguration Days? I don't even think so. Thumbs up to Oscar Sunquist, who seems to be putting in the same effort level regardless of where he is placed by his coach in the lineup. Thumbs down, the forward line combos aren't generating offense. St. Louis is a division worse, minus six goal differential, and every team has played the same number of games, six games so far. In additional news, forward Sammy Blaze returned to play one game after his two-game suspension and then was a healthy scratch for St. Louis. Defenseman Nico Mikola played two of the four games this week on the bottom pairing. D-man Robert Bertuzzo is on IR for an upper body injury. Up next this week, tonight at Vegas, and then Thursday again at Vegas, Saturday and Sunday back-to-backs, at Anaheim. It's a four games on the road this week. The first two in Vegas against the West Division Golden Knights and former captain Alex Petriangelo. How much does he put on the board in the locker room to win those games versus his old team? And better cannot inspire two games of effort from St. Louis. Then the back-to-back in Anaheim. Good news, John Gibson will probably only play one game. Of course, Jordan Bennington will probably only play one game. I think the games of the week are the two versus Vegas versus Petro. I don't look forward to watching anyone play Anaheim right now. The Blues really control their own destiny as this schedule unfolds, looking to see if they can string together a win streak. This would be a good week to start one. We expected it this past week, to be honest. We've got Colorado slotted in the third spot this week, two and two as well. This week overall, three and three. Six games played, six points, putting them in a uh, log jam in fourth. 18 goals, four, 15 goals against a plus three goal differential. Tuesday, the week started off with a 3 2 win in LA. Matt Kelvert shot, got through LA goaltender. Cal Peterson laying in the paint for a tap-in by Brandon Saad to open the scoring. Right-hand defenseman Eric Johnson returned to the lineup. Left-hand defenseman Dennis Gilbert also played as the Avs dress 7D and 11 forwards. This was to limit Johnson's time on ice in his first game back. That was the only game he played. It was a great move by Coach Bednar. In the second, Colorado looks to add to the lead with a goal off L.A. D-man, and that went in. Colorado had a baseball player slide into the crease, 
and the player was not pushed. That prevented L.A. goalie from making the save. Upon review, it was ruled goaltender interference, and that canceled the goal correctly. Second, the power play unit does make it 2-0 as a drop pass allows Devin Taves to blast it home through a screen. He scored a goal early this year the exact same way. Mirror image replay goals. Later, the sweet cross-seam pass allows Miko Ratnan to score from the dot on another Colorado power play. 3-0 Colorado after two. In the third, a defensive zone turnover leads to an L.A. goal over Philip Grubauer, a blocker side up top. Under seven to play a shot from the dot on the power play by L.A. makes it a 3-2 Colorado lead and how the game would end. Grubauer made 23 saves, allowing two goals against in the win. L.A. outshot Colorado 25-24, shots fairly evenly through two. L.A. 8-5 in the third when they pushed to try and come back. Colorado went two for six on the power play while L.A. was one for three. Johnson had 11 minutes 47 seconds time on ice in his return and again he went back on the injured reserve after this game Connor Timmins was at 1041 time on ice and Gilbert logged 9 minutes 54 seconds top pair Kale McCarr was over 24 and a half while Devin Taves led Demons time on ice for Colorado logging 25 minutes and 40 seconds Colorado looked in control of this game start to finish Thursday a 4-2 loss at LA Colorado goalie Hunter Miska makes his first NHL start post early by LA in the first and an odd man rush McKinnon drives the net his rebound is put away by Rantanen one nothing Colorado LA hits another post late LA penalty in the first leads to a McKinnon power play goal with 44 seconds left he skates to the dot and scores through a screen in the second LA on a five on three power play one timer beats Miska another LA power play goal late from the dot high glove side with 210 remaining ties the game under four left in the third a blue line pass down low put net front is tipped past Miska Landeskog hits the post after that then LA gets an empty net goal with 41 seconds left LA outshot Colorado 27-26 and in the third period 8-4 Miska three goals against 23 saves in the loss LA was two for five on the power play Colorado one for four quick was in net for the Kings again 11 forward 7d were dressed for the Avs. It was a Bowen Byram and Greg Patteron this time. Johnson and Gilbert were out of the lineup. Friday, a 3-2 overtime win at Anaheim. Less than three minutes in, Jonas Donskoy scores a power play goal on a great seam pass from Samuel Girard for a 1-0 Avs lead after one. McKinnon also hit a crossbar. Anaheim gets the lone goal in the second off the forecheck that leads to a point shot goal, 1-1 score. In the third, rookie Bowen Byram pinches with the puck down low and puts it on the tape for Rantanen to finish and a 2-1 Colorado lead. A minute 22 seconds later, Anaheim puts away a 2-on-1 to tie the game. In overtime, Colorado gets a 2-on-0 breakaway. Gabriel Landeskog 
gets the rebound net side, puts the puck between his legs, and completes a wraparound for the OT winner. Anaheim outshot Colorado 38-32, and especially in the second where the shots were 9-3 in favor of the Ducks. Anaheim went 0-5 for 5 on the power play, Colorado 1-4. for 4. Colorado goalie Philip Grubauer was stellar, two goals against, 36 saves in the win, outdueling Anaheim's John Gibson. Again, that same 11 forward 7D configuration for the Avs. Connor Timmins did not play. The Avs, of course, had back-to-back games against two different teams this week. Sunday 3-1 loss at Anaheim, Colorado had shots two hit the post and a crossbar through two yet anaheim scored a goal in each of the first two periods in the first was 58 seconds left after being outshot by colorado 13 to 7 again anaheim outshot in a second midway through a nice anaheim goal in slot that was set up by orion getzlaff to ricard raquel in the third, it would take Colorado till under six minutes remaining to get their first goal, Rantanen, from McKinnon. This period was all Colorado, as the lone shot registered by Anaheim was their empty net goal with one minute 40 seconds left in the frame. Colorado outshot Anaheim 33-15 in the game. Grubauer allowed two goals against with 12 saves in the loss. Meanwhile, Gibson had 33 saves and one goal against, as like against Minnesota earlier in the week, he steals a win for Anaheim that they had no business winning. It's laughable to even say they had a shot on net in the third. Again, even with Gibson and one decent goal, Anaheim is the worst viewing hockey experience against everyone they play, including the high-octane offense like Colorado. Defenseman Ryan Graves was not in the lineup. Timmons played. Again, that's a healthy scratch move. This week's Colorado analysis. I said that expectations of being considered a cup contender versus two non-playoffs teams from a year ago, and the expectation should be for a win streak. Colorado split the four-game set, and Anaheim actually picked up three or four points and Colorado picked up two. Now, Gibson stole a game here like he did versus Minnesota, yet Colorado still needs to find a way to get the win. That's what good teams do. While we like the 11 forward 70 look from Coach Bednar more than Minnesota's, just because the bottom pair minutes look more evenly distributed, it certainly didn't translate into wins. Colorado is 3-3, and and in a four-way tie for fourth, having the same point total after six games played as L.A., Anaheim, and San Jose. I don't know how you suggest that's a good start, and it's not one area specifically to point to where the improvement needs to come from. They need more goals, especially from the second line. They are tied for 15th in that metric. However, that is 5-on-5 as the power play is 34.5 success rate, and that's 7th in the league thus far. The penalty kill is tied for 8th, and they are top 10 in the league for fewest goals allowed. Colorado's useless factoid. It might seem a stretch given Eric Johnson only played 11:47 in the one game a Colorado win this season as he recovers, but I'd be curious to see the team's win-loss record when he is injured versus when he is healthy. The Avs were a blaze torching Arizona in the postseason bubble. 
in Edmonton, but the team's fortunes turned not just with the goalie injuries, but Johnson getting hurt too. His healthy return to the lineup does make the Avs way better with his veteran leadership and quality play. Thumbs up to Matt Calvert. He has one assist, but he has been working hard, drawing penalties, and all around been an energy bottom six guy for Colorado so far this year. Thumbs down to Nazem Kadri. He hasn't been anywhere near how good he was in the postseason bubble. His one goal was a power play goal, and Coach Bednar even had him playing third-line center instead of second-line center to start Sunday's game. He was even moved back rather quickly. He needs to be contributing more offensively because he can. In additional news for Colorado, Nathan McKinnon collected his 500th career point in the 3-2 win over L.A. Right-hand defenseman Eric Johnson and goalie Pavel Frankos are listed as day-to-day. Philip Grubauer has a 2.01 goals against average and a .923 save percentage, but he won't play all four games this week for Colorado. Having Frankos back would be great especially for the back-to-backs this weekend. And speaking of those games, up next is tonight against San Jose, Thursday against San Jose. The back-to-back versus Minnesota is in Minnesota Saturday and Sunday. If not for the Petriangelo factor playing against St. Louis, the Colorado at Minnesota games would be the must-watch ones this week. They are vital for both those teams. Those first two are followed next week by two more. So the four-game set is half the times the teams will play each other. Either team winning more than two or getting the games into OT when they lose is going to be greatly impactful to the standings. Colorado has to make up ground on Minnesota, who has a better record this early in the season. San Jose doesn't have as good goaltending and it's becoming evident early on in this West division. Colorado needs to make that the difference in the two games set before they play Minnesota. San Jose also has yet to and still can't play on home ice, but yet they sport a identical three and three record to start the season as Colorado does. Arizona this week went 1-3 and and overall are 2-3-1. and Six games played, five points, 17 goals for, 19 goals against, a minus two goal differential. Oliver Ekman-Larsen did not travel with the team. Kyle Capiobianco was in the lineup in their first game versus Vegas on Monday, a 4-2 loss at Vegas. On a Vegas power play, Arizona creates a turnover. Tyler Pitlick keeps it on a two-on-one. Goes bar down to open the scoring for Arizona with a short-handed goal. Arizona is able to kill off a Vegas two-man advantage. However, at 6-12, Vegas still without a shot. They do hit a post in the first period. one nothing Arizona after one. In the second, Vegas on a breakaway hits a post on a short-handed deke. Nick Schmaltz adds to Arizona's lead with a power play goal off the sidewall from the hash marks where he goes five hole. Vegas, under three minutes remaining, chip in a goal from behind the goal line, 2-1 Arizona after two. 
in the third, a pair of Vegas goals. The first off a turnover off the forecheck ties it. Next, a faceoff when a point shot goes off the back of a Vegas player without a stick net front and in the net. Arizona, 10 minutes of the third, had no shots on goal. Later, Vegas hits the crossbar and then adds an empty net shorthanded goal. Arizona outshot Vegas 32-28. After two, it was 27-15 shots. Vegas had a 13-5 shot advantage in the third. Darcy Kemper, 24 saves, three goals against in the loss. Arizona was 1-5 for on the power play. Vegas over 5. In keeping with our theme, Vegas had yet to score on the power play to that point of the season. A Wednesday was a 5-2 loss for Arizona at Vegas. John Hayden was put in the lineup for Barrett Hayton. 14-42, Vegas scored on the first shot they had on goal. A high slot shot through traffic beat Darcy Kemper. Coyotes denied by Vegas goalie Marc-Andre Fleury in close. Vegas then went the other way, and Alex Petriangelo got his first as a night through traffic. Three shots on goal for Vegas. They had a 2-0 lead, and that's how it was after one period. In the second, Kemper faced four shots shorthanded as Vegas had target practice on power play. Shots for the game were 15-5 to Vegas at this point, under five minutes into the second. 9-21, Mark Stone goes in alone and undresses Kemper on a 2-on-0 after a turnover at the Arizona Blue Line, 3 nothing Vegas. Drake Kajula on the forecheck, find Nick Smoltz in the slot for a post-in blocker side goal. In the third, an odd man rush, Four on four, Vegas pots another goal. Vegas adds their first power play goal on a breakaway five-hole goal on Darcy Kemper. Arizona Jacob Chikrin's slot pass tipped high slot by Kessel made it 5-2 Vegas. Arizona takes a penalty right after the Kessel goal and has to kill off a five on three. Dvorak hit the crossbar late, but the game ends 5-2. Arizona 0 for 4 in the power play. Vegas 1 for 7. Uh, remember, that was their first power play goal of the season. Vegas outshot Arizona 29-23. Kemper made 24 saves, allowing 5 goals against and lost. Friday was a 5-2 win versus Vegas for Arizona. In the first, a big rebound off a Connor Garland shot. Christian Dvorak puts it off the blocker for an Arizona power play goal at 322. 1-0 through 1, Arizona. A little over a minute into the second, Vegas ties the game on an offensive zone pinch after a turnover beat Arizona goalie Darcy Kemper. 12.05 left off the rush. Derek Passard goes short side top shelf with a blast. With eight minutes left, Arizona adds to the lead with some off-cycle pressure. Nick Schmaltz outweights Vegas goaltender Robin Leonard and puts it up and in. 125 into the third, Drake Kajula makes a sweet back pass on a three-on-two. 
and Garland goes forehand, backhand, five-hole to score. Midway through, Vegas gets a power play goal. Jordan Osterley adds a late empty net power play goal for Arizona. Vegas outshot Arizona 31-26, largely due to an 11-5 shot advantage in the third. Kemper made 31 saves, allowing two goals against in the win. Leonard struggled allowing four goals, at least two that he probably shouldn't have let in. Arizona was two for six on the power play. Vegas, one for four. Top prospect rookie Victor Solderstrom made his Coyotes debut 15-18 in time on ice. He also played Sunday, replacing Kyle Capiobianco. Vegas went with 13 forwards and five defensemen in Friday's game. Sunday, one nothing loss to Vegas. Vegas seemed determined to play a more tight-checking game after Arizona's win Friday. The game was scoreless right until the last minute of the game. Through two periods, Vegas held a 19-11 shot-on-goal advantage. The odd man rushes and transition games that helped Arizona score Friday were non-existent, and the play of Arizona Darcy Kemper kept the game 0-0. Vegas goalie Marc-Andre Fleury also made all the key necessary stops when he was tested. He would get the shutout, making a total of 16 saves. Vegas finished with 27 shots. Alex Tuck at center sent in a puck that Arizona believed to be icing. He was in backward motion, so the puck was behind center ice, but it looked as though part of his one skate was along the center line. Vegas capitalized as Arizona didn't get to the puck first. It went out front and was put into the net with 43 seconds to play in the third. A heartbreaking loss as Vegas gets two points, Arizona gets none. To be honest, I think one Tuck had control and was over-centered then circling back but still along the red line. I don't think it was icing. And if it solely is that the puck itself is behind center ice that makes it an icing, then they should change the rule. Heartbreaking loss, although Minnesota and Winnipeg also gave up late game winning goals in games they deserve to get a point from. This year, I think more teams because of this divisional game play and these four-point games are going to try and win in regulation and not give up loser points as much as possible. That's a good thing for the NHL. This week's Arizona analysis. Arizona won one of four versus Vegas. And I know that doesn't sound good. And they came oh so close to a split and considering we expected a sweep by Vegas, you could actually call this a positive. True, we removed all the expectation that the bar was so low that one win by Arizona can be seen as having a good week. Everything Arizona did as far as using their speed generating odd man rushes, albeit aided by goaltender Robin Lenners having a rare off night in net, produced a good template on how Arizona can win games. That's that Friday win. They have more skill at forward as guys are maturing and definitely a great amount of speed that they need to use against the bigger teams. 
On Sunday, however, none of that was on display, and if you don't score once, you definitely can't win. They aren't as good defensively this year as they have in previous years, but the activation and skating is more enjoyable to watch. They have players who can score. They just don't have the depth at forward that a lot of the teams in the division have by comparison. They are now last in the West Division, but they are a single point behind four teams, and they have now played half the games against Vegas for this regular season. Given the pair of games this week's, it's Arizona's offense, I am more confident than in their opponents in Anaheim's. During the Arizona broadcast for our useless Arizona factoid, they shared the Arizona Coyotes, 83.9% penalty kill success rate, was the best in the NHL for the past two seasons. It's useless because the changes to the forward group almost guarantee that Arizona won't stay atop the league in that metric. Right now, at a respectable 80.8%, they are tied for 13th in the league. The thumbs up, Phil Kessel had four goals this season. I guess he didn't like my questioning if he could play top six still. He has been great offensively thus far. Thumbs down, inserting John Hayden in the lineup for one game in this Vegas set of four. Stop trying to match size with Vegas, Anaheim, and the St. Louis teams. Rely on your skill and speed. Hayden's nine minutes, 43 time on ice that was ghost-like, meant taking out center Barrett Hayton. Hayton is an honorable mention for the thumbs-up this week. He scored a beauty of a goal and has looked to have matured far more since last year than we could have imagined possible. He's part of the reason we like the offensive upside of this team now. He deserves to continue to be an everyday player for Arizona. In additional news, Captain Oliver ekman Larson did not play any games, including the ones at home versus Vegas, and is still listed as day-to-day with the lower body. Backup goaltender Antti Ranta is also on IR, while defenseman Ilya Labushkin is in CPRA and yet to play a single game this season. Up next for Arizona, they have two games, Tuesday and Thursday versus Anaheim. Someone is going to look at Arizona versus Anaheim and say it will be a snooze fest. I disagree. Maybe last year it would have been. But the young players on Arizona, Clayton Keller, Nick Schmaltz, Connor Garland, Christian Dvorak, and Barrett Hayton, plus an engaged Phil Kessel and newly acquired Derek Bassard, are dynamic. Arizona has Darcy Kemper and a fairly vet D group. I like Arizona to run and gun and generate odd man rushes and speed and not dump and chase or play overly defensively. In fact, if they play up tempo, I think they can score more than Anaheim and win both games. If they play to that defensive style game they used to be known for, that's also the Ducks wheelhouse. And in that case... It'll be a dull two-game series. Anaheim has trouble scoring. 
and Arizona has good goaltending. I think some risk-reward offense, and Arizona could win a couple of five-plus goals to one games that would be enjoyable to watch more than a one nothing Gibson-Kemper shutout duel. You're listening to Central Division Hockey, the podcast. This week, I'm your host, Tim Bigelow. Let's look at the teams in the new Central Division. We're going to start with Chicago. This week, they went 2-0-1. Overall, now 2-3-1. That's five points in six games. Third in the uh, Central. (laughs) I want to say new Central. 19 goals, 423 goals against a minus four goal differential for the Blackhawks. Tuesday, a 5-4 overtime loss at Florida. Chicago goalie Kevin Lankin got his first NHL start. He then proceeded to play the rest of the week in net for the Hawks. In the first, Florida's Carter Verhege sprung on a break, goes forehand, backhand to score. Offensive zone penalty by Dylan Strom leads to a Chicago power play goal on a net front rebound. Chicago gets a power play pass from Dominique Kubalik off a Florida forward to score a goal on a Sergei Bobrovsky, his first start this year for Florida. A bad line change creates a Florida break. Initial save goes behind Lankinen in the crease, and it's tapped in by Verhage, his second goal for Florida. Kuba leak off a faceoff when wires a one-timer from the dot for another Chicago power play goal. Florida then hits the crossbar later. Patrick Kane was awarded a penalty shot after a breakaway chance, but Broski stops him on that penalty shot. 50 seconds left in the second. Kane ends up roofing a beauty goal backhand top shelf glove side to tie the game at three. In the third, Philip Kurashev gets his first NHL goal just inside the Florida blue line. Shoots to score using the Florida defenseman to create a screen. 4-3 a lead on a Goal Barbowski should have had. Chicago takes a penalty after the goal. Florida ties it with a point shot tip power play goal. 109 after the Chicago go-ahead goal. OT, a Chicago chance led to a three-on-one Florida. Lincoln had made a big stop on that. Florida gets another zone entry and passed through the slot. And that is converted for the overtime game-winning goal for Florida. Chicago outshoots Florida 34-28 in the loss. They go 2-for-2 on the power play. Florida was 2-for-4. Lankinen allows five goals against with 23 saves in the overtime loss. Exciting game with bad goaltending, to be sure, from both teams. Chicago gets the loser point, and that was their first point of the season. Friday, Chicago gets a 4-1 win versus Detroit. Lankinen again in net for Chicago. Patrick Keane opens the scoring with a power play goal as Detroit goalie Thomas Grace is out of position as the puck is shot towards the net and Keane buries it. In the second, a missed high stick call has Keane take a two-minute unsportsmanlike penalty, arguing with the official on that one. Detroit gets a penalty call on that power play. Teams play four on four. When they get back to five aside, Calvin DeHaan gets a point shot and it finds a way in a low blocker side. Chicago 2 nothing out for two. In the third, Detroit pulls the puck off the goal line to save a goal less than two minutes in. 
Detroit penalty gives Chicago five on three, and Andrew Shaw finishes a tic-tac-toe play in the slot, making it three nothing. Detroit gets its first goal just over halfway through the third, just under three minutes to play. Matthias Janmark fans on a shot at the Detroit blue line, but it still has enough to go in for the empty net goal. Detroit outshot Chicago 31-28. Lankinen only allowed one goal against 30 saves for his first NHL win, and Chicago goes 2 for 5. Detroit 0 for 5 on the power play. Sunday, a 6-2 win versus Detroit. Lankinen Starting his third straight. Under five in the first, Kane sets up P.S. Suter for his first NHL goal. Suter gets his second on the power play midway through the first. Less than a minute into the second, Detroit scores, cutting the lead to 2-1 for Chicago. Connor Murphy gets a shot through before the end of the second, restoring the Chicago two-goal lead. 3-1 after two. Less than a minute into the third, Janmark scores. Detroit gets a power play goal midway through but Suter completes his hat trick less than a minute later with 405 left Philip Kurashev scores from the slot and Chicago wins 6-2 Lankin in two goals against with 25 saves Detroit had goaltender Jonathan Bernier in that Chicago outshot Detroit 35-27 Chicago one for two Detroit two for five on the power play uh, this week's analysis first the surprise that goalie Kevin Lankin and gets to start Tuesday a bigger surprise, goalie Malcolm Subin hasn't had the chance since the first game of the season to start a game. Lankinen wasn't too impressive in his first game, allowing five, but coach Jeremy Colton went back to him versus Detroit Friday, and he backstopped Chicago to their first win. Last week we said, and I quote, the speed game and effort from the forwards and defense has been consistent even with all the injuries. Noticeable were rookies P.S. Suter and Philip Kurashev, who were playing with top six guys. On defense, Ian Mitchell hasn't looked to be a liability either thus far. They just haven't had goaltending. Lankinen only allowed one goal against and two goal against in those last two games. It was against Detroit, so we won't acclaim him as a team starter quite yet. We will say the team did get good enough goaltending to win both games. In fact, Chicago going 2-0-1 was impressive after an 0-3 start. Offensively, the Hawks have been competitive. Finally, the goaltending held up its end. We still would like to see Subban in net again soon. He will play better than the opening game. I just don't think it's necessary to play Lincoln in until he loses, but we'll see what Chicago does. The rookies we made note of last week, as I read you that part, P.S. Suter, 24, and Philip Kurashev, 21, are both checkborn. They combined for four goals in Sunday's win and have five goals this year. Patrick Kane is making everyone he is playing with have lots of opportunities to cash in offensively. Dominique Kubalik getting goals on the power play was also good to see for Chicago. Simply, Chicago is scoring enough and they are allowing more goals against still. 11th in goals for, 28th in the league in goals against. Useless Chicago factoid. Chicago is one of four NHL teams since 2005-06 to use at least three goalies in the first four games of a season. Would have liked to hear if any of those four teams ended up making the playoffs. 
Thumbs up, Pius Suter getting three goals on Sunday. Just good to see him take advantage of the opportunity to play with top six caliber players and find offensive success. Thumbs down. Although he has two assists on the power play, three assists total for the year, it's just crazy Adam Boquist is getting first unit power play time while Duncan Keith waits to go out with the second unit. Keith is the best option. I'm not sure Boquist has the shot threat to be put in that top power play spot. In additional Chicago news, if Chicago injury troubles weren't bad enough without Taves, Doc, Nylander, Smith, and Seabrook out, you can add right-handy Adam Boquist and left-winger Alex Dabrinkit to the list as they were just put on CPRA. Up next for Chicago, four games Tuesday at Nashville and Wednesday. Then they return home to play two more against Columbus Friday and Sunday. Chicago must be feeling good after Detroit, but Nashville won't be as we will discuss when we get to the Preds part in this podcast. Columbus also hasn't lit up the score sheet, but will the reinforcements be ready by the weekend? Chicago can't afford to feel too good. They are about to play two teams that are expected to be off to better starts than they are. Remember, the difference between winning and losing really is coming down to how many goals against the Chicago goalies give up, not their ability to score them, even with all the injuries. The games versus Nashville becoming more interesting only because Chicago is a team on the winning streak and Nashville isn't. We just expect it would be the opposite, and that raises the intrigue. Chicago still needs to keep its underdog mentality this week. It's not going to be an easy one. As we move on to Dallas, this week they went 2-0-0 as they began their season. That is their same mark overall. Two games played, four points, which finds them in fourth. 10 goals for two goals against with a plus eight goal differential. We go through the head-to-head matchup summary for the pair of games between Dallas and Nashville and then look at both teams this week respectively. Friday, a 7-0 shocker win. Dallas at home after a scoreless first where Nashville doubled Dallas in shots 10-5. Penalty trouble came in to haunt Nashville. A power play goal from Joe Pavelski opened the scoring at 2.45 in the second. At 4.11, Alexander Radulov added a power play goal. And midway through the frame, it was Denis Gurionov wiring home a power play goal. Radulov would add his second when just under six minutes left in the second. And almost two minutes later, while shorthanded... Essa Lindell stripped the puck at the Nashville blue line to score a shorty, and it was 5-0 for Dallas after two, all goals scored on goalie for Nashville UC Soros. The third would see Nashville have goalie Pekka Rene come and play net, and would see Dallas add an additional two more, you guessed it, power play goals. Pavelski with his second, and Yolkiwi Ranta with 5.08 left in the third for the 7-0 Dallas win at home. Anton Hudobin stopped all 34 shots by Nashville for the shutout. Dallas had 28 shots. Soros, 5 goals against, 15 saves in 40 minutes, 2 periods of work. Rene, 
Two goals again, six saves in a period of relief. 20 minutes, Dallas went 5 for 8 on the power play, while Nashville was 0 for 5, plus giving up a shorthanded goal. Nashville had Mikhail Granlund and Yakov Trenin in the lineup for the first time this year. Dallas captain forward Jamie Benn was injured in the second period in a collision with Victor Arvidsson. He attempted to return, took a short shift, and did not play the third. Sunday, in the rematch. In Dallas, a 3-2 Stars win. Again, special teams propelled Dallas. Gurianov scored a power play goal in the first with 5.05 remaining for Dallas to take the lead 1-0. The teams traded power play goals in the second. Rope hints at 6.32 into the frame with Nashville's Philip Forsberg at 14.55 to make it 2-1 Dallas after two. Joe Pavelski would make it 3-1, scoring, you guessed it, a power play goal just under five minutes into the third. A tip in front by Mikhail Granlin at the midpoint of the third cut the lead to 3-2, but that's as close to the comeback as Nashville would get. Dallas outshot Nashville 22-17. Hudobin made 16 saves, allowing two goals against in the win. Soros, three goals against, and 19 saves in the loss. Nashville looked better in the lopsided loss than they did in this, what appears to be, closer scoring game. And the second game, they generated little offense against a team missing a lot of players due to injury in Dallas, including Ben and Kiviranta, who did not play for the rematch. Dallas went 3-for-4 on the power play, while Nashville was 1-for-4. Nashville played defenseman Lucas Spiza and took defenseman Matt Benning out of the lineup. This week's analysis for Dallas. Dallas raised their Western Conference Championship banner before the game, and even with the delayed start to their 2021 campaign, they dominated the special teams and physical play, and Anton Hudobin made key saves. In addition to not having goalie Ben Bishop, Star forward Tyler Sagan, Vet D-Man, Stephen Johns, forward Blake Como, they were all out. So it was rookie Ty Delandria, guys like Nick Camanio and Mark Fisick all starting the season opener, and Nashville had already played four regular season games to none for Dallas. It seemed everything was stacked against Dallas to be able to win. The seven-goal game was so unexpected, especially after a scoreless first. With Ben out, center Tanner Curl and Justin Dowling were inserted additionally for the second game. To put it into perspective, it's only two games played. However, just for the sake of crazy stats, Dallas is first on the power play in the NHL with a 66.7% success rate. That's about double what the team that will end up finishing first in that metric at the season end will have for a success rate. Dallas is first in goals per game and allowing the fewest goals against per game. Again, small sample size. Given the injury list of this team, however, it's still impressive. Dallas's useless factoid the Dallas scorers scored one even strength goal in winning two games played to start the season. Just think about that for a minute. Thumbs up. The leadership, by example, by Joe Popelski. Two games played, three goals, four assists, seven points. 
thumbs down to the growing injury list of this Dallas roster. They really do need enough healthy bodies to be able to play games. In additional news, goaltender Anton Hudobin in Friday's shutout win, which was his career ninth, also collected his 100th career NHL win. Up next, for Dallas, they've got four games Tuesday, tonight, and Thursday versus Dallas, Saturday, and Sunday back-to-backs at Carolina. Detroit probably won't want to take penalties after seeing how the Dallas power play has started this year, but even with injuries to both sides, Dallas has to be the favorite, but Detroit's going to show up and compete. The big test is the back-to-back games in Carolina. Carolina's 2-1, and one, and they've had to miss a few games because of COVID-related postponements. Carolina looks to be a very complete team with skill and size. The games with Dallas will probably be some of the best regular season divisional games we'll see in that division. The winner of the eight games played between the two teams may be the difference from one of them finishing second or third spot within this new central division. Definitely worth seeing that matchup this upcoming weekend for some good hockey. Carolina plays Tampa Bay Thursday once they return from the canceled games because of COVID. Moving on to Nashville this week, they went 0-3-0, although they were originally scheduled to play four games, overall 2-3-0. So five games played now for them, four points, has them sitting seventh in the new central. 12 goals for, 17 goals against, That's a minus five goal differential. In addition to those weekend Dallas games, they did get in one Monday, a 4-2 loss at home to Carolina. A scoreless first where Nashville shot Carolina 12-7, still had them starting the second on even terms. With just under four minutes left, Carolina scored a power play goal to open the scoring. Nashville responded quickly under a minute later with Philip Forsberg tying the game at one through two periods of play. A Dante Fabro stretch pass was tipped by Arvidsson to Philip Forsberg for a beauty of a goal. In the third, Carolina retook the lead and added another even-strength goal midway through the third for a 3-1 lead. A Nashville power play goal by Victor Arvidsson with around six and a half minutes left in the third cut the lead to one, 3-2 Carolina. That was Nashville's first power play goal of the year. In the last minute, Carolina added an empty net goal to make it a 4-2 final. Nashville outshot Carolina 33-24. Pekka Rene allowed three goals against in his first start, making 20 saves in the loss. Nashville won for five on the power play. Carolina was one for four. Tuesday's game versus Carolina was canceled with five Carolina players on CPRA. That meant Nashville only had the two road games versus Dallas that we have already summarized. This week's analysis for Nashville. Last week I felt maybe I was being too hard on Nashville, and I want to remind you that there was a lot to like about the Nashville Predators, but this week confirmed the assessment. The opportunity to be game ready and play a team still recovering that hadn't played a game yet this season and utterly Nashville had a lack of discipline, effort, and compete level. The penalties in both games were excessive, but that is being behind the play and being outworked to 
have those penalties be called against you. Nashville should have had an early lead, but never had one against a team playing its first game. The results are unthinkable. What positives should be drawn from this? The first one is that the line combinations the week before should have stayed the same. That's on Coach Hines. For the life of me, I said how good Eric Hulla, Matt Deshane, and Luke Cunnan looked as the second line. I get putting Michael Granlin in the lineup, but how about on the third line for his first game when the top six was producing? What follows was that lack of offense and playing from behind that by the third period of the second game results in guess what? Granlin being promoted to the top line and the team's leading goal scorer thus far in the season, Philip Forsberg with four goals, playing on the second line. Of course, Granlin tips in a goal, so no doubt this is the lineup to start the next game. Actually, leaving the Joshua line together and to Shane with Cunning and Hulla is the best course of action. Granlin can play on the third line with Sissons and Cousins. That's actually probably going to win Nashville the most games. We said in the free agency recap podcast for Nashville that Matt Benning was not a good signing. He couldn't remain a regular on the awful D group in Edmonton last season, and we want to remind you that. He took bad penalties, and how confident is GM David Poyle in his D group? Not very confident when you are adding D-men from the waiver wire. Winnipeg, who had defense issues last year, was having to do that. Just as an example, Mark Borowicki was outmatched by the big Dallas forwards. And here's the thing. Tampa Bay, Carolina, Columbus are built the same way. Those are all now divisional rivals this season. Nashville needs to play with speed and skill the team they used to be to have success in this new central division. They aren't built to play this style of the big body of the Tampa Bay, Dallas, Columbus teams. And a few guys trying to do that is not going to be the answer. Nashville right now is 24th in goals against uh, thus far, 27th in goals for, and Granlin messed up the top six good line combos. I begged this team to move on from him. They didn't. So I really can't be sorry for them. At 55%, the penalty kill percentage is barely over half at its success rate, while almost in the top 10 in the league in taking penalty minutes per game, Nashville is. That's going to lose a lot of close games for a team and make a lot of games not even close. While a lot of teams' power plays are struggling to start, those teams' penalty kills are excellent. Nashville is 10% success rate, 26 overall, and yet 30th in the PK when teams, for the most part, aren't really at full tilt with their specialty teams and their power play. Nashville has yet to score the first goal in any game they've played this season. Thumbs up, Philip Forsberg with four goals so far this season. He continues to show he is the best forward on Nashville. Thumbs down, Coach Hines putting Granlin on the second line for the Dallas games and then promoting him to the top line. That's on the coach. The amount of ice time given Granlin is 1955 average for two games. 
Eric Holla deserves a top six spot and at ice time more. Useless factoid. And we're going to keep this one running all season long. Nashville is 2-1 with Mikhail Granlund not in the lineup. They are now 0-2 with him in the lineup. In additional Nashville news, Nashville goalie Connor Ingram, who was basically the taxi squad goalie for the Predators, entered the NHL-NHLPA player assistant program this week. Left-hand defenseman Luca Spiza has an upper body injury after having played in his first game for Nashville. And forward Kelly Yarncroft is also out on IR with an undisclosed injury. Up next, three games for Nashville. As you heard when we talked about Chicago, Tuesday and Wednesday, back-to-back. And then they have a game with Tampa Bay in Tampa Bay on Saturday. Both UC Saros and Pekka Rennie have over three goals against average this season. With the challenge of goal production, Nashville is again starting to have. The goalies have to be better, and the team has to be more disciplined and better defensively in front of them. Chicago can score. I would take the over in both games because the goaltending I'm really wondering about. Saturday might be another wake-up call like Dallas was for how far away Nashville is from being a cup contender now. Hopefully Nashville plays discipline with speed versus Chicago. Who gets a better goaltending probably wins that back-to-back set of games, which will be really important for Nashville. And we'll see how they do against the defending Stanley Cup champions for the first time they play them this year over the weekend. Well, that leads us to Winnipeg this week and that one Central Division team stuck in the North Division this year. Winnipeg went 3-2 and two in the five games they played this week, overall 4-2 and two, as they only played one the week before. Six games played eight points. Of course, that's that all-Canadian division. 22 goals for 17 goals against for a plus-five goal differential. Monday, they had a 3-1 loss playing in Toronto against the Leafs. A scoreless, evenly played first, and then it went downhill from there. The Jets got outshot 22-6 to in the second period. In the second, Toronto got a power play goal to open up the scoring, and the Jets gave up another to Toronto with under two minutes left in the period. However, in the last minute, Winnipeg Kyle Connor scores to make it 2-1 to before the second is over. Connor Hellebuck, is the sole reason the game is a one-goal game. Of course, when you look at that shot total, that's a good explanation. The Jets end up out-shooting Toronto 12-6 in the third, but Toronto ends up adding an empty net goal with less than a minute remaining, more like a half minute remaining. 38-28 shots for Toronto. Winnipeg 0-4 on the power play. Toronto 1-1. Hellebuck gets the loss, only allowing two goals against while making 35 saves. Just had no run support. Patrick Laine, who played the first game for the Jets, was injured in that season opener and did not play for the Jets up until the trade with Columbus. The next night, back-to-back games for Winnipeg against different teams, a 4-3 overtime win in Ottawa. 
Winnipeg backup goalie Laurent Brassois played his first game of the year. Around five minutes in, Ottawa scores a power play goal, and midway through the first, they make it 2-0. Adam Lowry scores with under two minutes in the first to make it 2-1 Ottawa. In the second, Ottawa regains the worst lead in hockey, that two-goal lead, 3-1 on a power play goal again. Kyle Connor responds with a power play goal of his own with just under four minutes left in the second to make it 3-2 Ottawa. Under three minutes left in the third, Blake Wheeler ties the game for Winnipeg, deflecting a point shot from Josh Morrissey. In overtime, the Jets complete the comeback. Josh Morrissey gets an outlet pass to Andrew Kopp, who springs Nick Ehlers for the game-winning overtime goal. Brassois has to make 38 saves while allowing three goals against to pick up the win as Ottawa outshoots the Jets 41-28 and still end up losing. Winnipeg 1-for-5 on the power play. Ottawa 2-for-5 on the power play. Thursday, a 4-1 win in Ottawa for Winnipeg. Nick Ehlers opens the scoring with 8-10 left in the first with a high slot wrister that beats Matt Murray 5-hole. Fourth line center Nate Thompson leaves in the first with a lower body injury and did not return. 1-0 Winnipeg after one. Kyle Connor sets up Mark Shifley for a net side tapping goal to make it 2-0. Jets in transition. Trevor Lewis drives to the net. He hits the post, but Adam Lowry following up is there to put in the rebound. 6.05 left in the second. Blake Wheeler finishes off a tic-tac-toe passing play with a backhand shot that goes off Austin Watson and in the Ottawa net. 4 nothing Winnipeg after two. A late four-on-four goal by Ottawa with less than three minutes left in the game ends Hellebuck shutout bid. One goal against 28 saves for the win. Winnipeg 0-7 on the power play. Ottawa 0-3. Left-hand defense rookie Vili Hinola was in the lineup. Sammy Niku was taking out of the lineup. Saturday, the third game between Winnipeg and Ottawa, a 6-3 win for Winnipeg. This one, however, Winnipeg is at home. Nick Ehler scores in the first on a power play for Winnipeg to lead 1-0. Ottawa ties the game in the second. Then Kyle Connor scores for the Jets to give them a 2-1 lead before Ottawa scores two unanswered to make it 3-2 after two. In the third, Andrew Cops tap-in goes off the post, but he puts in his own rebound under three minutes in after Paul Statsny had put the puck right net side, right on the tape of his stick. Statsny then would get a power play goal in the slot with 4.45 to give Winnipeg the lead. A minute 10 later, Andrew Kopp gets his second in less than a minute Later, after that, Shifley gets an empty net goal to make it 6-3. to three. Tough night for Hellebuck, but the team scored to win him a game for a change. Three goals against 18 saves, but he picks up the win. Winnipeg 2-3, for three, Ottawa 0-2 on the power play. Right-hand defenseman Dylan DeMello played his first game after his wife had their son, and he didn't go on the road trip to Toronto, Ottawa. Sunday, a 4-3 loss to Edmonton. Adam Lowry opened the scoring midway through the first for the 1-0 Winnipeg lead after one. Winnipeg had a 16-9 shot advantage in that first period. Edmonton outshoots Winnipeg 19-6 in the second as they drive the play. 21 seconds into the period, 
and adding another for a 2-1 lead after two. With under 10 minutes remaining, Nick Ehlers scores in the third with just under five to goal. Blake Wheeler makes it 3-2 for Winnipeg. Looks like they're on their way to another win, but Edmonton gets the tying goal with 3-0-5 to play in the third. A high-stick penalty in front of the Jets' net late in the game with about two minutes remaining by Dylan DeMello puts Edmonton on the power play. With one second left, just as the penalty expired, Edmonton scores the game-winning goal for the regulation win. Andrew Kopp had a goal called back for contact with the Edmonton goalie early that would have put the Jets up by two. However, the goalie interference negated that goal. Shots were even at 38 in the game. Winnipeg 1 for 2, Edmonton 0 for 3 on the power play. Of course, right after that power play expired, late in the third is when they got the game-winning goal. Laurent Bassois ends up giving up four goals against making 34 saves in the loss. David Gustafson played fourth-line center. This week, analysis for Winnipeg, besides the trade we talked about at the top of the podcast. 3-2 and two for the week was a disappointment for Winnipeg this week for sure. Only one game did Winnipeg play a 60-minute game, and they still allowed Ottawa a goal to ruin Hellebuck's shutout bid in that Thursday game versus Ottawa. Monday, the second period, they were outshot badly and overall played uninspired. That game was only close because of Hellebuck. Tuesday, they dug themselves into a hole and needed overtime to win. Thursday, like I said, they allowed that late goal, but that was their most complete effort this week. Saturday, they actually gave run support for an off night by Hellebuck, but that also required coming from behind. It's becoming a theme. A listless second meant another comeback Sunday to then allow Edmonton to tie and, on a late bad penalty, have the offensive zone time to win the game in regulation and not even get the loser point. The better effort over 60, and this team may have gone 5-0 and this week. The thing is, they have yet to show a 60-minute effort once this season. Missed was injured right-hand defenseman Tucker Pullman, and Dylan DeMello was rusty in his first two games back. Left-hand D Logan Stanley is playing, but the transition game and ability to join the rush that Billy Hinola is capable of was missing other than the one game he played a Winnipeg win, and he's been a healthy scratch as other defensemen have been put in ahead of him into the lineup. For all the talk of team identity and draft and develop culture this team professes, it certainly doesn't display it other than flashes. To me right now, this doesn't look like the team I anticipated being a playoff team. Beating Ottawa three times doesn't make for a good week. And I'm starting to wonder if the Jets aren't a feeder system for the rest of the National Hockey League to draft and develop for somebody else's NHL team with the exodus of young players once they're getting to their prime. I don't want to rant much more. Andrew Kopp should not play top six once Pierre-Luc Dubois arrives and is able to play. Technically, he's in Winnipeg. 
going through the protocols. Jansen Harkins and Mason Appleton probably should play third line between Adam Lowry. Matthew Perot, who they keep playing up the lineup, should only play fourth line. Cop probably could play fourth line center until Nate Thompson is healthy with Perot and Trevor Lewis. Thompson returns. Cops could be put on left wing and Perot could be put in the press box. All of this Paul Maurice won't do. The line combos hold this team back and it's looking more like it's trending the way of Nashville's season. I won't even have to cover the North Division playoffs at this rate. The useless Winnipeg factoid during the Saturday game versus Ottawa Sportsnet color commentator, and I'm not exactly sure who was doing the color of that game, said that Kyle Connor would get more power play time now that Patrick Laine had been traded to Columbus. That fails the truth statement. It's a false statement. Connor has been on the top power play unit playing with Patrick Laine. So that's been going on a couple years Connor's power play ice time is going to remain exactly the same. Thumbs up to Nick Ehlers and Kyle Connor, who are scoring, tied for the team lead with four apiece going into Monday night. Also, shout out to Trevor Lewis, who in his fourth line role has been consistent, steady, and a guy that you can actually put on the ice and play fourth line minutes. Thumbs down to Coach Paul Maurice's lineup card. Matty Perot, as I mentioned earlier, playing up the lineup when he belongs on the fourth line or the press box is one example. Cop playing top six is another. In additional Jets news, Tucker Pullman can't return from injury soon enough. It looks like a 10-day quarantine before Dubois can play his first game for Winnipeg might in fact be 14 i'm not sure they haven't exactly said how many days he has to nate thompson is the other winnipeg player currently on injured reserve up next tonight the jets play edmonton and then saturday vancouver they are on a seven game homestand in the midst of it when the jets start playing 60 minutes they will win Until then, they will probably continue to find ways not to. And with that, I want to thank you for listening to Central Division Hockey, the podcast this week. Thanks to Winnipeg House Electronic Group Map for the show intro and extra music with their song Acid Trash. You can download and listen to their music on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you stream your favorite music from. Once again... This got put up late on Tuesday. I was hoping to have it up before the Tuesday night games were played. All the teams were in action tonight. So obviously those games aren't included, but will be included in next week's podcast. And that should arrive on Monday. It's pretty much the Sundays when there is a full slate of all eight teams playing when it may in fact end up being a Tuesday. I still haven't come up with a closing catchphrase and I was going to say to enjoy the NHL action that was coming up later, well, yesterday now when you're listening to this. So with that, just remember every week, We will bring you an updated version that looks at all the games that were played and the games coming up. The big matchups, of course, Vegas versus St. Louis. One of those 
was tonight. They do have another game. That's must-watch. And if you're just looking to watch good hockey, I do recommend checking out Dallas as they play Carolina because those should be very excellent hockey games as well. 